This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. I like the model of parents teaching their kids. I try to copy the model that my mum used with me, which was rather than lots of lectures, and let's sit down today and learn about compound interest, Lacey, and here's a chart, you know, anything like that. It was more led by the child when they were inquisitive and they asked questions and using those opportunities to spark discussions. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmiwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Lacey Filipich, who lives in Perth in Western Australia and is the founder of Money School, which helps people become financially independent and raise financially capable kids. Money School is also the title of her award-winning book, which was the winner of the Best Book 2022 at the Money Awareness and Inclusion Awards. Lacey graduated as valedictorian from the University of Queensland in Australia with an honours degree in chemical engineering. So if you want to find out how a chemical engineer ends up teaching people about money, check out her TED Talk. Lacey, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Marina. Now, you have an extraordinary story. You retired at 31 years old to live the life that you wanted. That's one where you have the time to pursue your own passions. Now, there was obviously some very good luck involved in being able to do that, but also a really well thought out plan. And you've also faced tremendous adversity in your life. And we hear all about that in your TED talk, if people want to check that out. But really, you are passionate about financial literacy and teaching financial literacy, and that has now become your life's work. How influential were your parents while you were growing up in the way that you started thinking about money? Very influential. That's definitely where I learned about money. It wasn't taught a lot at school in Australia back then. It's better now we have it in the curriculum, but certainly not a lot when I was a kid. So it was pretty much exclusively what you learned at home. And I like to say I learned from my mum what to do and from my dad what not to do. Okay. (laughs) So sorry, dad. So they split when I was eight years old, so quite young. And that was sort of when I became aware of money because we started talking about, you know, things like child support and having to maintain two houses. And I said, that's when I became aware of it. And my mum didn't earn much money, but supported two kids. We always felt safe and loved. My dad earned a lot more money, but spent it. It went on a lot of things. And so it's quite interesting to watch as they grew older. And I was getting into my 20s and 30s, the different lifestyles they'd had because of those choices. So I still continue to learn from my dad, who's my surviving parent. My mum passed away a couple of years ago. But yeah, that, that is definitely the core of where I learned from my parents talking to me about it and teaching me about it. So what were the most fundamental lessons that you did learn growing up? Let's start with mum. <laughs> yeah. So my mum taught me that the most important thing is not how much you make, it's how much you keep. So look, making a lot of money is great. I definitely think it's the quickest accelerator to getting to financial independence is making a big income. But even if you don't make a big income, so long as you're sensible about what you do with that money and that you are strategically trying to save it and then turn those savings into something that's going to produce an income for you, you can still get ahead. And she's a real good case study of that. A lot of people ask me, is it ever too late to start? She only started investing when she was 49 and got to financial independence when she was 63, which was just two years ahead of the retirement age in Australia. So that doesn't sound like a big deal, but those extra two years were pretty important. So I think you can be 
sensible. You don't have to take big risks. Do have to put some money aside and you have to put that money to work. That's really what I got from her. And I really valued her advice because she was an accountant. She understood tax law. And we have for our retirement funds over here, superannuation, you've got 401ks and 403bs and all those kinds of things. Same principles in general, put money aside for future you. She was really good at helping me make decisions about those things instead of just following general suggestions or taking someone's advice as you've heard it and not questioning it. So I really valued her insight into being inquisitive and curious and analysing what you'd heard. And that's helped me make really good decisions that suit me later on that aren't necessarily the traditional decisions that you would be told to make. (laughs) Right. Obviously, you have a very non-traditional path, but it's worked out fantastically for you. Let's just quickly talk about what does financial independence mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I think about financial independence as the point at which the assets you own, so those could be anything like shares, property, bonds, sometimes even cash in the bank, those kinds of things. When you own enough of those that they produce an income for you, so they pay you while you own them, you don't have to sell them. And if you have enough to live off that income to cover your living costs, then you don't have to work anymore. So that's what I think of as being financially independent. And that number is going to be different for everybody. You know, what you want to live off is going to be different for what I want to live off. So assets we like are going to be different, but the principle is you have enough assets paying you so you get to choose if and when you work. And although I nominally retired at 31, I probably work harder now because I am working on a passion, right? You know, getting out of bed in the morning is (laughs) easy. So it's not about like sitting on a beach drinking cocktails for the rest of your life. It's about knowing that you can exchange your time the way that you want to and it's not because you have to go to work and you have no choice. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of people's idea of a dream. So tell us how you actually applied these lessons to build the life that you wanted. So I think the principle that I really took on board, I didn't realise that was what was happening when I was a kid, but is this idea of not wasting, not wasting time, not wasting money. You know, the same way we tell our kids to turn the tap off when they're brushing their teeth or turn the light off when you leave a room to not waste electricity. I really took that to heart through my whole life. And so it's not a surprise that I ended up an engineer because engineers are experts in reducing waste. That's what we do. (laughs) Solve problems with the minimum amount of waste probable. And so that's what I pretty much have done with my money. I thought about, well, I don't want to waste it. What can I do with it? This doesn't mean I don't have fun. I still spend money on the things that I really like, that I really get a lot of value out of. Like, for example, holidays. I'll spend a lot of money on a really good holiday, but I'm not into cars and clothes. So I don't spend a lot of money there because I think that's wasteful. So that's one that I think I absorbed as a kid, particularly watching my mum, who was a single parent and had to make ends meet. And she couldn't save for, you know, from when I was about eight to when I was about 18. She really didn't have enough money to set aside. So I think that's where I learned that sort of inherent skill with not being wasteful with money, getting your best bang for your buck. So that one really stuck with me. And being cheap to run that allowed me to save. So I started saving half of every dollar when I was 10. And it's just a habit now. Yeah, I just, it's just what happens. Yeah, yeah, I just do it. Fantastic. Amazing. I mean, imagine if we all saved half of everything we earned. Yeah, I'm glad I started young because I haven't had to think about it. Right, right. (laughs) And as I've only learned as I've gotten older, the power of automation. So, you know, we talk about those habits, but these days you don't have to have the habit because we're not handling cash as much. So much of it's online. And if you're an employee, for example, I'm not sure if this happens in the States. It does in Australia. You can ask your payroll to send your money to multiple accounts. So you can say, well, put this amount into my savings account that it's hard to get to. So I'm learning more as I get older about the automating side of it. But because I've been doing it for three decades, it's just second nature now. Yeah, great tip on automating your expenses and your savings if you can. Yeah. 
I think you're a fantastic person to explain what the basic principles of financial literacy are. We talk a lot about them in my podcast, but how do you teach this to people? So I like to keep it really simple. So I stick to six words, which is three rules in total. (laughs) So the first one is save. The second one is buy assets. And the third one is avoid bad debt. So there's no numbers in there. There's no, you must choose this asset over that asset. There's no, you need this amount. There's no, put it into the retirement fund versus own it yourself individually outside of the retirement fund. Nothing like that. I think if you can obey those three general principles, put some money aside for future you. That's what saving is. It's paying yourself first. And then put most of that money to work in the form of assets, whichever ones you're interested in that are going to generate an income. And then try to avoid bad debt. And bad debt is, of course, debt that's not for assets. So it's things like credit cards. We have buy now, pay later in Australia. I think it's the same for you guys. There's things like that that make it very easy to spend more than your income, but you're basically borrowing from future you and future you has to pay that money back. So you have to take the lifestyle cut. So I think if you can do those three things, save, buy assets, avoid bad debt and use them as general principles, your chances of getting to financial independence are much higher. And even if you don't get there, you're going to be in a better financial position anyway. So you may as well try. And do you teach it the same way to kids? How do parents teach these concepts to kids? It's a really important point. So my belief is that it is best learned at home because I think so much of money isn't the maths. We think it's about maths, (laughs) but it's really about your values and your beliefs. You know, how much you choose to donate or give is going to be different to me and where we want to donate or give. And just like your family values, I think your beliefs around money and your values around those should probably be based at home with school reinforcing it. So I like the model of parents teaching their kids. I try to copy the model that my mum used with me, which was rather than lots of lectures and let's sit down today and learn about compound interest, Lacey, and here's a chart, you know, anything like that. It was more led by the child when they were inquisitive and they asked questions and using those opportunities to spark discussions. So, for example, I learned about compound interest the day that I was going to run my first hair wrap store. That was my first business when I was 10 years old. And in the car on the way, my mum said to me, what are you going to do with the money you make today? And I was like, oh, I'll probably buy some lollies or it was a Walkman back then. That's dating me. <laughs> and she said, if you put money in the bank, Lacey, that the bank will pay you more money on that. And then next year they'll pay you money on the money they paid you. That was her explaining compound interest. And my eyes just lit up. And so she saw my response and she went from there. She saw what appealed to me. And I think the more you can do with your kids to have those sort of impromptu conversations that are situational that give it context, the better. And I think you've got to be a little bit deliberate about that, but it's, as I said, not about having lectures. And it depends on the kid. So you can use simulations, you can have discussions, you can give them real-life opportunities. It's just really what works for you. So I like to give a bunch of tools and let them choose what they think suits their kid. Fantastic. And I love the story you, you tell about how you bought your first piece of real estate. Yeah, that was an interesting experience. I was saving obviously very diligently. And I had put aside all this money and everyone else that I went to uni with was was driving what we would call bombs in Australia. They're like ugly old cars that you know are going to break down. They cost less than a thousand dollars. And I had several thousand dollars put aside. And I said to mum, I'm going to go buy a car. And mum just looked at my bank statement because it was printed back then. Said, do you know that would be the deposit on an apartment? And of course, again, my eyes went, sorry, what? We'd been learning about real estate investing. She'd been taking me to you know, sessions and I'd been reading, you know, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is like got some good principles in it. I'd, I'd take it with a grain of salt if you're going to give that to your child, but <laughs> it's got some interesting concepts. And she had just said, you know, you could buy a property with that. And I, I went, really? 
oh my gosh. And that was, that was it. I wasn't buying a car. I went and got the thousand dollar car instead. <laughs> and we started looking and she really helped me understand that it took a long time, it took six months to find something that I could afford. And of course, at 19 years old, I was second year of uni. Even my lecturers were saying, you're insane. What are you doing? Like they, they were in their thirties and they didn't own a house. But I'm really glad that I let my mum, you know, boost me up and help me through that process. I learned so much doing it. And it gave me the confidence to keep trying later as well. So that particular moment really changed the trajectory of your whole life. Yeah. And it's only looking back that you see those things, right? You know, at the time you're kind of like, oh, that's interesting. But looking back, that's one of the clear turning points that there was that one when I was 10 about compound interest, the one when I was 19 about, you know, are you going to buy a property? And then uh, in my 20s, when I started getting interested in learning about shares, those sort of really shaped where I've ended up, definitely financially. So obviously all these concepts are important to everyone, male and female, boys and girls, but why is this so important for women and girls to understand? So I'll give you Australian stats. It's pretty comparable worldwide. I don't know exactly what it is where you are, but for example, where I sit in Perth, Western Australia, women earn on average 22% less than a man. While it's illegal to be paid a different amount for the same job, on average, we earn less. There's a lot of cultural things about the types of work we often choose. For example, caring work, like being a nurse or a teacher, is paid less on average. It's valued less by society. So there's a lot of cultural stuff in there. So there's that, you know, you're going to get paid less on average. But there's also women take more career breaks at the moment because we're still the only ones that can have the babies and breastfeed. <laughs> so, so biologically, we need to. But we're also, you'd often see, you know, women that stay out of the workforce for a long time when their kids are little because childcare costs can be high for example. And so the choice is, oh, would I go back to work and lose money, you know, effectively because I'm paying for childcare or do I just stay at home? And so their career trajectory slows down. They miss out in that period in Australia on putting money into their retirement funds, which doesn't happen to the men. There's that lifetime impact on earnings. So I guess the moral of that story is, and I I talk about it as being a vulva tax, we just get less money. (laughs) So we've got to be that much better with it. So that's the sort of general applies to everybody. The one that really worries me, and it's a stat in Australia that's horrifying for me, is that one in six women will be financially abused in their lifetime here. So that means they'll either have their ability to earn money restricted or they'll have their money in an account they can't get to. They'll have their partner take on debt that in their name without their authority. It's hugely disempowering and obviously can be associated with other forms of abuse. So one in six women, that's a lot, you know. That's a few million people yeah. <laughs> in our Australian population. I, I really think women have to know about money so that they can make sure they don't end up in that situation. Or if they do end up in that situation, they have the means to get out. Because that's the thing that worries me is women who get trapped and therefore they go back again and again to that environment and, and get stuck. And uh, That terrifies me. That, that's the main, you know, really scary reason. The other ones are kind of, well, you can do better with what you've got. <laughs> yeah, these are horrifying statistics. And these are statistics that we should all really pay attention to when we're raising our own kids. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. How are you raising your own kids when it comes to financial literacy? So I've got a daughter who's nine at the moment and a son who's seven. So my daughter was the first guinea pig. <laughs> and that's how I think about her as a bit of a guinea pig. And it's, it really shaped how I talk to other parents about how they can teach and reinforce this idea that every kid is different. What I have learned about my daughter's personality and how she's interested in stuff is that she loves reasoning through the things. So the first conversation we had about money was before she was three, when we were in the shop. And she wanted to buy a stool that had Winnie the Pooh on it that cost $15. And I wanted to buy the stool next to it that cost 
$5 and had a star on it. And I was explaining how they were the same thing. You know, if we buy that Winnie the Pooh one, that's the same as like the money that we would have spent on bread and milk this week and, and having that discussion with her. And at the end, by the time we got to the cash register, she put the Winnie the Pooh stool down and, and took the other one. So I wasn't prepared for kids to be able to have those conversations that early. You know, she couldn't even understand the maths then. <laughs> but that concept of waste really got through to her. And she's very interested in money. So like the first time I had to have a really serious discussion about it with her, which is less than five, my father was going traveling, had left his jewelry. I came down to find my daughter writing a sales list. Cufflinks, $5. <laughs> you know, like ring, $4. Yeah, and I was like, darling, you're going to have to give granddad the money if you sell those. And she was like, what? Aren't they ours? So we had to have a discussion about that. And I was like, oh, well, you can do it, but you have to ask granddad. And she went, oh, this is terrible. And then she walked out to the front verge and started singing and busking. You know, she's she's really proactive. So I actually have to rein her in sometimes. But we we just had the first compound interest discussion the other day because she got cash for Christmas and we we're talking about the difference between having the cash in a piggy bank in her bedroom versus let's put it in the bank. And I explained the interest she's missing out on and talked about that compounding. And she, just like me when I was a kid, her eyes lit up. So so that's how I'm sort of going with her. My son will spend every cent that he's got on Lego. Okay. He's asking how much money he's got in the bank account. He wants to know what, how many sets he could buy. So he's a different kettle of fish. We have to approach it differently with him because he's just not inherently that way. And so we will be guided by him on that. So I'm talking to him about, you know, the delayed gratification, the satisfaction of waiting. Like remember when we, you wanted that Lego, we bought it that afternoon and then you just haven't played with it. Whereas that one you waited for six months, you play with it every day, you know, trying to show that experience so that he can see the value of delayed gratification and and it's totally different from my daughter. So yeah, it's been interesting to see the different personalities and they just come out like that, right? You just yes, get stuck with what you've got. They do. <laughs> and so every child is different. Every child is different, needs to be treated that way. Now, you also teach children about money and finance. Do you ever see a difference in the way girls learn about money and finances and boys, or do you think it's sort of gender agnostic when you're young? I find the learning gender agnostic and my preferred way to teach kids directly. So most of the time I'd rather teach the parents and have them teach their child for those reasons I've explained. But whenever I teach kids directly, it's usually 10 to 12-year-olds. And rather than doing like, hey, we're going to learn about money, I get them to start a micro business. And then as they're starting the micro business, they make some money. So they really value the money and they learn about, you know, money in, money out. And we can do things like hourly rates. So I find that's like my silver bullet for them. I notice differences in the types of businesses they choose, but that's mostly to do with the hobbies they picked. Uh You know, someone who likes being outside weeding chooses a weeding business. Someone who likes playing basketball will do a basketball coaching business. Someone who likes making friendship bracelets will do that for their business. So I think to the lines that there are some gender differences in typical hobbies sometimes, then that's about it. But it's not a a rule. You know, there's no like, oh, well, you know, boys only do these kinds of things and girls only do, you know, they're all different. So I haven't seen that. I've seen their learning on both sides. It's, It's so much more about their personality than about their gender because, like I said, you know, I've got boys who are like my daughter that I've taught and girls who are more like my son and vice versa. So it's more about the personality, I think. Yeah, which is the way it should be, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you knew when you were younger that you know now? Knowing that good investing can be boring and probably should be is something I hadn't appreciated. I thought if it was boring, I was doing it wrong. should be exciting. And, of course, that's not true. Is it time in the market matters more than timing the market? So this whole idea that it's an exciting game, that I'm going to try and model everything, that's just really getting yourself a job. It's not what investing should be if you don't want to work in that industry. (laughs) So... 
So I think knowing that is important, but I don't begrudge myself any of the mistakes I've made. I've made a lot of them, but they've really helped me understand how not to make those mistakes in the future. And I think it would be hard to get there without that knowledge. And that's one of the things I've learned since doing this podcast. Everybody makes mistakes and it's it's really okay to make mistakes. And actually the younger you make them, the better it is because you have all that time to recover. Exactly. And that first property that I bought when I was 19, I didn't buy a home to live in until my fifth property when I was in my early 30s. And I still made mistakes, but less of them because the stakes were much lower on that early property. So I totally agree. The sooner you make those mistakes when it's not going to make a big difference to your financial outcome in life means later on you're not going to make them. Yeah. So Lacey, to wrap up, what advice do you have for parents raising girls? So this might seem a bit strange, but I'd like you to go take a test. And it's called the Harvard Implicit Association Test, the IAT. The reason I'd like you to take that is all of us think, and I do this too, we think we're not biased. We think that we are gender agnostic and we would love to be, but the fact is we aren't. Go take the test, please. Just try it. Might take you 10 or 15 minutes, but at the end of it, have a look at the results. And the reason why I want you to do that is no matter how good your intention is, there's a chance that you're using a bit of bias just because that's cultural. It's not your intention, it's subconscious, and that helps bring it into the forefront. And I think the best thing we can do for our girls is to not let them succumb to this idea that they have to be the good, quiet girl who well behaves everywhere. They need to be assertive. They need to be willing to negotiate. And I think culturally we tend to push girls more towards, no, don't push there, don't be rude, don't uh, make people uncomfortable. That's an average thing. I'm sure there's plenty of families who definitely don't do that. But take the test and see whether you do have that bias, which I think pretty much everybody has, just to remind yourself that you have to stay on top of it, you have to be conscious of it, and to really make an effort to ensure that your daughters are happy and willing to negotiate and get the best for their money and they're not going to sit there being quiet but lose money as a result. Fantastic advice. I'm going to go take that test in a minute. Lacey Filipich, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Where can people find out more about you? The best site to go to is moneyschool.org.au. That's got links to the book. There's a free course called Debt 101 on there if you want to learn about getting out of debt. I've had uh, about 6,000 people take that course, so feel free. It is general. It applies to anywhere in the world. We've got students from 130 different countries. And, of course, you're welcome to read the book. You can get that from libraries if it's available or in ebook, audiobook if you prefer that. Thank you, Lacey. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongoals.com. 